If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me then to Genesis, all the way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Our text again for this morning is Genesis 1 and verse 1. And God's Word says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father God, we praise your name because you are worthy of being praised. You are the Creator God. We ask now as we turn to your Word that you would teach us from it. Lord, help us to have a right understanding of who you are as the Creator God. Help us to rightly see who you are according to your Word that we might understand ourselves and our place in this world. We pray for your grace and mercy to be upon us as we go through this series. We ask that what we, what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. All for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, last week we began this new series in the book of Genesis. It's a series that we're going to we're going to only look at the first three chapters of Genesis. And as I mentioned last week, the idea behind this series is that we would have a right and biblical understanding of how God has made this world, God's design for this world, God's design for man, God's design for women, God's design for marriage, God's design for the family. Um, things like what is sin? Where did it come from? Um, what is God's plan for this world? So all, all of those things we will be addressing in the series. But we began last week by looking at this first verse, and our aim was to consider some of the good and necessary consequences of the first verse in the Bible, that, that first statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what can we learn from that statement? And specifically, what does this tell us about God? So we're really starting with God. How should we think rightly about this God who made the world? And what do we know about him from Genesis 1-1? And our first observation was that he is the one and only true God. The principal lesson concerning that one and true God is that he's the creator of all things. So we explored three good and necessary implications of this, of God being the creator of all things. First, God existed before all things, and therefore God is eternal, and what it means that God is eternal. Then second, God is self-existent, because he existed before all things, therefore he exists within himself. His being is absolute, Therefore, his being is not in any way derivative from anything else. He alone is self-existent. And then finally, he is all-sufficient in himself. That means he's not dependent upon creation or anything in the universe for his being. And not just for his being, but he's also not dependent on anything in the universe, any of his creation, for his wholeness, for his felicity, for, for his, 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 what we might call his joy. And he's also not dependent upon anything in this world to accomplish his sovereign will. Now all of that may, if you were here last week, all of that may have seemed a little bit heady to you. Some, some of this week might seem a little bit heady to you. You might be tempted to think, that, you know, this is only the stuff that theologians think about in their lofty ivory towers. But the truth is, everyone, everyone is a theologian to some extent. And right thinking about God is not an option. It's not an option. 
Paul said to the men of Athens, he said, we ought not to think that the divine being is like. Look, what is, what is uh, Paul saying? Paul's saying it's, it's your responsibility to not think incorrectly about God. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or the Im- imagination of man. Before he said that, he had corrected their theology. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So here the apostle asserts that a basic, a basic understanding of God, a basic right understanding of God, requires us to think of him as an all-sufficient being, as a God who doesn't need man. The God who is dependent upon man is actually a man-made God, is what Paul is saying, not the God of the Bible. If we're to worship the one true God, then we must think rightly about him. So then, continuing with this objective this morning, this objective of thinking rightly about God, we've come back to Genesis 1.1. And the question that I want to ask or consider today is how should we think about this Creator's relation to His creation? How should we think of this God's relation to His creation? Now, in regards to this question, there are two errors that I I want to help us avoid this morning. And so we're going to look at each of these errors, and we're going to compare them to the biblical vision of God and God's world. The first error is a rejection of of a necessary implication of verse 1. That is that since God created the heavens and the earth, since he made them, he must not be synonymous with them. Since God created the heavens and the earth, that means God is not the heavens and the earth, and the heavens and the earth are not God. This conflation of, of God and his creation is what is known as pantheism. So pantheism is our first error. Pantheism versus the biblical view of God. What is it? What is pantheism? Well, pantheism is the view that God is one with the universe and the universe is one with God. In his, uh, in his work, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology, theologian John Frame gives us this definition. Pantheism means that God is the universe and the universe is God. Panentheism which is a twin brother or sister of pantheism, means that the universe is in God. The universe is divine, but it does not exhaust the divine. Clearly, at any rate, God and the world affect and change one another. They are mutually dependent, he says. God does not control everything that takes place in the world. Many things happen simply by the free will of actual occasions, God simply adjusts to those happenings and in effect, he says, remakes himself. So in pantheism, there is a total conflation of God and the universe. The universe and everything in it is God. And therefore, the creation and man is divine. It's all divine. God is the collective consciousness. He's the life force. He's the being He's being and matter and all of it combined. And then in panentheism, God is so united and identified with creation that he changes as we change. Because 
the universe is an unconscious emanation or extension of the divine essence. Now, the consequential errors to thinking this way about God are, are numerous, but they all stem from the failure to, rec- to, to recognize this dis- distinction or to distinguish between God and God's creation. The principal error of panentheism or pantheism is a rejection of the fundamental truth taught in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I pointed this out last week, but it says God created the heavens and the earth. It does not say God became the heavens and the earth. It does not say God evolved into the heavens and the earth. Nor does it say God extended himself to include the heavens and the earth into his being. No, it says God created the heavens and the earth. So contrary to pantheism, the Bible teaches that God is distinct from his creation and that he presides over and above his creation. In other words, the Bible teaches that God is transcendent. The transcendence of God refers to him being distinct from and elevated above his creation. In other words, we could say God is not made of the same stuff we are, nor do we make up any of what or who God is. He's the supreme being who is overall and rules as the single sovereign Lord of all. Psalm 113.4 says, The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens, who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Psalm 97. This psalm begins by saying, let the, Lord, let the, the Lord reign, so let the earth rejoice. And then in verse 9, it tells us why the earth ought to rejoice. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 95, 3-5, through five, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. All of these and many more verses in Scripture teach that God is distinct from his creation, and he is set above his creation. He is a transcendent God. Now, along with the failure to recognize the transcendence of God, the pantheist also fails to surrender to God as a self-conscious and personal being. He fails, and I say surrender because it's not just a recognition, right? The pantheist isn't just failing to recognize God as a self-conscious and personal being, but because it doesn't recognize God as a self-conscious and personal being, it does not surrender to him as such. If God is synonymous with the universe, then at best he is the collective consciousness of all conscious beings, which means he is not a personal being, who acts according to his own divine and immutable will. Again, the Bible presents to us a very different God than the impersonal God of pantheism. The whole creation account testifies to a God who is both transcendent and a God who is personal. He's a God who speaks. 
and causes things to be out of nothing. He sees, when you read through the creation account, what does he do when he creates? Each day after he creates the thing that he creates, he looks at it, he sees it, and he says, it is good. And then when he makes man, what does he do? He says to himself, let us make man in our own image. So you see, there is self-awareness in God. There is intentionality in God when he creates the world. There is intellect in God, and there is a will in God. He's not merely a a life force or a a power that is blindly and unconsciously causing life to evolve. No, he, he is intentional. He is willed. He is self aware. And then when this God makes man, what happens? Well, there's communication. He speaks to man, and there's intimacy. There's fellowship with man. He gives the man instruction so that he might flourish upon the earth that he's made. And then, as well, man is made in God's image. He's made in the image of his maker and to live in his presence, which is an indication that God himself is a self-conscious personal being. Because man is made to know his maker and to have a relationship with his maker. And this is one of the great perils of, of pantheistic thinking. It deifies man in the world, and it dethrones and distorts God to an, to an ambiguous amalgamation of energy and matter in constant flux. And therefore, there is no personal and supreme being whose character sets the standard of what is good, right, true, and beautiful, who designed this world with a purpose a being to whom we are actually personally accountable to and to whom we owe our absolute allegiance to, a God who can be known because He is a God who is distinct from His creation and He is a God who has spoken and has revealed Himself to His creation that man might know Him. In short, the God of the Bible is not anything like the God of pantheism or the God of panentheism. And this brings us to our second error concerning God's relation to His creation. And I think, and I would say, this error is probably more of a danger to most of us than the first one. This error is known as deism. Deism. Deism might accept the main proposition of Genesis 1.1, that God created all things, yet it imagines that the God who made the world made it in such a way that it functions and it develops independent of Him. He made it and He left it. Again, John Frame defines deism as the view that God created the world and established in that world a system of natural laws, causal and ethical, but does not thereafter enter into nature or history. Deism rules out God's supernatural intervention in history and also God's active governance in this world. Vern Poitras in his book Interpreting Eden says, Deism consists in the idea that in most cases, created things are sufficient in themselves 
to develop under their own power. He created things in such a way that they are sufficient in and of themselves to develop under their own power. You see, the deist has a God who is above creation, but above in the sense that he is removed from creation. He's like the clockmaker who makes the clock and winds it up so that it might run six, seven, eight, ten, twenty thousand years, or however long, and he puts it on the mantle and he lets it just run its course, run on its own. Now, against this notion, the Bible teaches that God is present in creation and is consistently or continuously sustaining his creation. Furthermore, as we noted in the creation account from the very beginning, the Creator shows Himself not to be a distant and far away God, for He immediately, when He creates man, comes to Him and interacts with Him. Now the strict deist would deny any involvement of God with the natural world. Any involvement at all. But there is a softer deism that has crept into the church which does not deny God's occasional miraculous intervention, but it still imagines the the natural world as a self-governing and self-sustaining world. And the biblical doctrine which counters this kind of deism and all deism is the doctrine of the providence of God. The doctrine of the providence of God. The providence of God is God's creative, sustaining, upholding, directing, and governing power at work in this universe, in this world. The doctrine of the providence of God says God is not far away letting things run on their own. They wouldn't run on their own. God is actively, continuously upholding, directing, maintaining, governing everything that exists. The Westminster Catechism asks, what are God's works of providence? And it answers, God's works of providence are His most holy wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of his creatures, ordering them in all their actions to his own glory. Now we could turn to many texts for this, but the first couple ones are in the New Testament, Colossians 1, 15, 15 through 17, and this speaks of the Son of God. And listen to what it affirms about God and his action in this world says, He, that is the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning He's the heir of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And listen, in Him all things hold together. In Him all things hold together. The same with Hebrews 1.3. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, that is the Son, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So the triune God created this world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made the world. He created the world. And the triune God sustains and maintains this world. Even the laws of nature 
exist and work as they do because God wills them to do it. Every natural process, all life and growth, all laws, the changing of the season, the rising and setting of the sun, it is all due to the work of God's providence. God says to Job in Job 38.12, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? What is God saying when He asks Job that? He's saying, do you do the work that I do? No, you don't. How is it that the morning begins? How is it that the dawn knows its place? It is that God commands that it is so, and it is so. Psalm 135, 5-7, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Psalm 104, verse 10, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. Verse 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plant plants for man to cultivate that they may bring forth food from the earth. One of my favorites, Jesus in Matthew 5. He says in verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What is he saying there? He's saying so that you may be like the God of heaven. And what is the God of heaven like? Well, he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. Why is it that the sun rises? Because he causes it to do so. Why is it that the rain falls because He causes it to do so? You see, the the Bible reveals to us that even what we consider to be the result of natural laws, which are consistent, they're predictable, they make for an intelligible world, uh, they're uh, conducive for life and cultivation in this world, even those are works of God. They're testimonies of God's kindness and faithfulness and goodness to the inhabitants of the world that He made, you see. Imagine how chaotic it would be if there wasn't gravity and if gravity didn't always work the way it works. See, it's a kindness of God. It makes the world that we live in intelligible. It makes it conducive for life. It makes things consistent so that we can have an understanding of God's created order, so that there might be order. But who's behind the order? It's God who's behind the order. He's the one who's making it all work. He's the one who's upholding it all. Now, James Ranahan, in his, in his uh, work, Baptist Symbolics, he gives this really tangible example of this, uh, helpful explanation of this, of God's providence. He says... When you bow your head to pray before a meal, you thank God for the food He provided for you. This is an acknowledgement that the good things we enjoy, such as our daily bread, come to us from God. He is the first cause as He upholds, disposes, directs, and governs His creatures and their actions. And yet we know that the food before us does not miraculously appear 
It is rather the result of a long series of creaturely actions, beginning with a seed planted in the ground, growth through watering and the nourishment of the soil, harvesting, transportation, and so forth. The delicious salad you enjoy, and I would prefer the delicious steak that you enjoy, but he said salad, so we'll go with salad. It comes to you through many steps. It usually involves many people to bring it to you. And yet you thank God as if he directly provided it to you. And in reality, his providence decreeing in eternity, his providence did, he says, decreeing in eternity that those plants would produce for your nourishment, upholding their vitality and growth in this world and sustaining everyone involved in bringing them to you. He used each person and involved and everything involved in the planting, in the nourishing, and in the harvesting, and the delivery of that food to you. It is quite appropriate to thank him for the food while recognizing that the Lord uses providential means to accomplish his decree. Contrary to de deistic thinking, the world and all life within it is dependent upon its creator for its continued existence for its development, and for its flourishing. This means that even though we might talk in categories of, say, natural and supernatural, the biblical view is that both those categories, natural and supernatural, fall under the providence of God. He establishes and He maintains the ordinary laws of nature, and at the same time, He is free to supersede them when He wills. If He wills the sun to stand still in the sky it will stand still. But when the, when the sun runs its ordinary course, it is likewise doing so because God has willed it to do so. Now the first we might call a miracle. The second is God's ordinary work of providence in the natural order. Both declare God's glory and both demonstrate His kind, intimate involvement in the world that he has made. Now along with God's providence, God's word also affirms to us another important doctrine, and that is God's imminence. God's imminence. When we talk about God's imminence, we're saying that God is not far off from his creation, but that he's near, and actually he's present within his creation. He's not contained by the heavens and the earth, yet he inhabits the heavens and the earth. He is not contained in space as matter is contained in space, yet his presence pervades all space and all matter. The biblical teaching of imminence is that though God is distant from the world, he is yet very much present within it. His presence pervades this world. So when we think about God's providence in the world, we're not to think of him as removed and remotely involved from afar, working from afar. Rather, His power and His being are ever-present here and everywhere in this world. Psalm 139, 7, the psalmist muses on this, the wonder of God's presence in all places, God's imminence, and he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, lead me, and your right hand shall what? Hold me, which implies his presence, even there. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? That's the Lord speaking. Do I not fill heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? And and the answer is, yes and amen, you do, O Lord. The truth of God's providence and God's eminence is clear in Scripture. And His providence and eminence in His world save us from a deistic view of God. They demonstrate that the God who made this world While He is a transcendent God, He's not a distant God. He's a God who's near. He's a God who is personally involved in His creation. He made His creation. He didn't just leave it to itself. He continues to sustain it, uphold it. And He's intimately involved in it. And this is most clearly demonstrated in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, who was a man, who, his son who became a man, who lived on, on this, in this world, who lived an earthly life, who died on a Roman cross, and he rose from the grave. Why? So that sinners might be redeemed and brought into an eternal fellowship with the God who made them. You see, the deist, ultimately the deist believes in a God who created the world, but doesn't or can't redeem and save man from his state of sin and misery and death. Because he's a distant God, he doesn't meddle in the affairs of man at all. And so our best hope of an eternal reward in the end, instead of an eternal punishment from God, is to accumulate enough good deeds in in our lives that the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. And then maybe when we stand before this distant God in the end, he will let us in. And so you see, you take away God's providence God's imminence, and God's loving involvement in this world, and you lose the gospel. You lose Christianity. You lose Jesus Christ. You lose the cross. You lose the resurrection. And you lose any hope of being forgiven by God and reconciled to Him and saved from the eternal consequences of your sin. But praise God that His Word reveals the truth to us. The truth about what kind of God He is and how He actually relates to His creation. That He is not the God of pantheism who can't be known and can't save because everything is God and God is everything. No, the one true God, on the other hand, can be known. He is not us and we are not Him. And as the supreme being, he has the power and he has the will to save man from the deathly consequences of his rebellion and his sin. And our hope, by the way, is not that our being and our consciousness will be swallowed up into the one in the end. No, but that we will become united with our maker, with our creator and our savior in such a way that we will remain who we are and he will remain God and our worship will always be directed outwards, not inwards, but outwards toward this God who made us, God who is holy and different in us, yet a God who loves us and came to save us and redeem us to Himself. Amen? Likewise, we can praise the Lord that He's not the God of deism. He didn't create this world and leave it to itself. 
He powerfully directs and He governs all things and is ever-present in this world. And His love and His care for this world were supremely displayed when He sent His Son to live and to die for us that all who believe in Him might be made right with God and know Him and have eternal life with Him. And by the way, this gospel, wonderful gospel message gives us the assurance that not only is God involved in this world in a sort of general way or just in a providential way so that things keep running as they have been in the past, but that He is a God who is involved and and intimately so and lovingly so with each and every one of the lives of His children. Amen? And we're assured of this in Romans 8, 28 through 32. Listen very carefully to this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, how is it that those things are working together for good? Well, it is so because he's not a distant God. He's a God not just involved in this world in general. He's a God who is intimately involved in every single one of the people who believe in him every single one of his children, and he's working all things together in their lives personally for their good. And then we say, well, what is that good? Well, it goes on to tell us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's working all things for our good, and that is to be made like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we don't stop there because listen, He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He also not with Him, or how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God is that intimately and personally involved in our lives that He sent His only Son. He didn't spare His only Son for us. How will He also not care about all of the things that are going on in our lives? How will He also not give us all things that in the end we might know our Creator God and our Maker and our Savior and our Redeemer? He is a God who is not distant. He's a God who's near and we can know that Because Jesus came and He lived and He died for us and He rose for us. He didn't spare His only Son for us. Therefore, we can be assured our God is not the God of deism. He's not far away. He's a God who is intimately involved in this world and not just involved in this world, but He's intimately involved in your life. He's intimately involved in mine. He's a God who is intentional. He has a plan. He's a God who can be known. We can know that because He sent His Son. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we praise You for all of these things. We praise You, Lord, that You're a God that we can talk to because You're a God who is distinct from us. You're not simply a life force at work in this world, but You are a God who knows. You are a God who sees. You are a God who creates. You are a God who governs. And You are a God who loves. We thank You as well, Lord, that You're not a deistic God who is a far-off God, but a God who is ever-present in His creation, and a God who has made His presence known in the coming of Your Son. We thank You. We praise You for these things, Lord, and we ask that You would help us to believe them 
and live in accordance with them. May we praise your name for all of these things. Live a life that is filled with gratitude and praise and thankfulness for all that you are and all that you've done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.